Let us go to the Lord, our God, in prayer. Father God, as we approach your word this morning, first we're mindful of the many who are out with illness at this time, who are struggling with medical realities in our congregation. We pray that even though they cannot be here this morning, that you still bless them in, with a double portion of your goodness this morning. And we pray that you bless us. As we turn to your word, we look to this prophet Habakkuk, and we consider that which you have for us this morning to feast from. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are now in our second installment in this brief prophetic book of three chapters, Habakkuk. In one sense, this is a prayer diary. A prayer diary, as we talked last week, of a massa. Massa is a hard prophecy. It's a hard oracle. Habakkuk has been made to see a hard thing. The reality of the Babylonians coming and conquering Judah, this land that he's been praying for, a land that he desires to see reformed, a land that he desires to see God's power magnified in the people. And it's not being seen. He's, the, he's one of the final prophets before the first temple is destroyed. And so we, hopefully, through the power of the Spirit, we're almost like that, that when we were children. Remember, the diary was like the sacred thing. You wanted to look at the diary. You, wanted to, you acted as if the words that you put into your diary were so profound, if you had one. And we want to look to this diary of this prayer warrior. And consider and learn. And I mentioned last time about how what Habakkuk has just been told is a little bit like, oh, you're worried about the state of the nation in our modern day? Well, look to Russia, look to China, look to North Korea. Good news, something is happening. North Korea is going to take over and it will really start to fix things. And of course, we kind of, we didn't get into Habakkuk's reality and what he struggles in light of that truth. But I thought about that more this week. Still, that doesn't quantify the fullness of what Habakkuk is being told. You see, the original Babylon Empire, the Babylonian Empire, really started around the time of Abraham. It started around 1900 BC. By the time of Moses and Joshua, and they're entering into the land, this group has become a nation. The heyday of the Babylonian Empire has actually been gone. It's long gone. There's threat on the world. There. And so it's, this is almost closer to if God told somebody today, good news, I'm going to fix Christianity by raising up the Vikings and allowing them to conquer. What? The Vikings are going to conquer again? But that's a little bit of what's being told here. It's a difficult Massa, a Massa where we know from the prophet's own words, he's been able to see something of this devastation, this destruction, this annihilation that is soon to come to Judah. And it's bewildering. Because where, of course, did Abraham come from? He came from the land of basically Babylon. And so wait, now the from Babylon is going to come a people who will attack 
the favored family of our father Abraham and remove them from the land and just essentially devour them and devastate them? How does this work, God? How does this work? And it's not that Habakkuk is struggling to believe the prophecy that he's just been shown. This isn't like in, I think it's Matthew chapter 16, good. Give me grace if I'm off on a chapter but or two. When Peter has just been told what Jesus will do in the Passion, and he says, Jesus, you have no idea. And I'm obviously paraphrasing. <laughs> you have no idea what you're talking about. That's not going to happen to you. We're not gonna, you're not going to die in that kind of way. And what does Jesus respond with? He says, get behind me, Satan. Peter in that moment was struggling to believe that which God had declared. That's not Habakkuk's story. He just can't figure out how this is all going to work. He's not doubting so much what he's seen from God. He just doesn't know how these puzzle pieces are going to come together because God's people have been given promises. And so how can God honor his promises and let... Yet let the nation of Judah, this lion of Judah of a nation, let it be utterly cast out in despair, utterly destroyed, utterly decimated. How can you let someone you love be utterly decimated and somehow bring it back to life, revive it, bring it back again? How does that work? That's not how man's wisdom works. You can't, you know, if you see evil rise in man's wisdom, and even the church, we so often convince ourselves, I'm so, I've grown tired of it. We convince ourselves it can never get better. It only gets worse. We can be such pessimists in the church. And I don't, that's not who we are. We are people that look at devastation, look at Alliteration, and yet we see how God gives life to it and rises out of the ashes. A saving plan for us. This is the truth of Christianity. This is the truth of the faithful, of those within the covenant family of God. And this is what Habakkuk is wrestling with. He's trying to wrap his head around this truth. This is at the core of the Massa. In the, in the, if you don't, weren't here last sermon, Massa is the Hebrew word for a difficult oracle. How a loving God can let evil befall the object of his love, and somehow it's still good. How can that happen? And this question is for us too to wrestle with, because we are the people who unapologetically declare... Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But also, unfortunately, the Bible tells me of trial, of hardship, of pain, of suffering that I must endure, that we must endure, we must take up our cross and follow him. And so how do we reconcile that? He says he loves us, and yet I'm made to suffer. Life is hard. How does that work? That's the Massa. That is what this prayer journal of Habakkuk is dealing with. And appreciate the historical context of what Habakkuk is saying, seeing in this oracle also in this. 
Judah and Levi are the only two tribes that remain. The other 10 tribes have already been decimated by Assyria previously. More on that in a little bit. Those other 10 tribes were enslaved and they were scattered through the nations. And it doesn't seem like they're ever coming back or ever going to be brought back into the fold. And so how, God, how are you going to have Judah and Levi, these tribes, follow that same path and do something remarkable with it? We've already seen what's happened to the northern kingdom. It exists no more. We don't even know where to find it at this point. And as Habakkuk is struggling with these things and he doesn't know what to do, he decides essentially that we had a break today. We had a break in our Sunday school because Rob is under the weather. But you know what he runs to? He runs to the attributes of God. The firm things he knows are unchanging and true about the God in whom he worships, the very core essence of God to find comfort in his hour of difficulty. While evil seems to gain the upper hand through this prophecy he has been made to see, he begins to think and consider upon the God he worships and adores. Those unchanging things about his character, that singular essence of God. And he begins at the start of verse 12 with the eternality of God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God? It's not that God just simply has no end. He has no beginning. God's always been. But more than that, he connects that to the fact that God is holy. In his, he's been eternally holy too. He's never had a moment where he's not holy. And so Habakkuk fondly remembers that God is his holy one. And so in grounding himself in those two core truths, that God is holy and God's always existed, and so God's plan essentially from that must be good. It must be wise, even if he can't understand it. If you can't reconcile a God who loves and has promised, and yet also a God who will allow suffering to come. Even if he can't, he knows that's a good starting place. That's a good foundation to begin in. God has an eternal plan. It's a holy eternal plan. And it's an eternal plan that is mindful of the things that Habakkuk has concerned himself with. And then Habakkuk, from this foundation, in his prayer diary, begins to go further. In seeing that Judah will be made to endure an almost extermination-like event, a carnage so extreme that the prophet can't understand it. In light of that holiness of God, in light of that eternality of God, look where Habakkuk moves to next. He remembers that God will always have an eternal relationship with his people. That the promise, because God is an eternal God, he has eternal promises. He has promised us things today, Christian believer, that will last forever. We have promises a trillion years from now that God is going to make good on. We always say, what are the two certainties in life? Death and taxes? No! 
The most certain thing is that God will honor His Word. He will honor His promises. In one sense, Habakkuk is not so unlike Abraham more than 1,500 years earlier from this prophet when Abraham was told, go send your son up the mountain and sacrifice that son. And Abraham, at that moment, he was dealing, he would have been dealing with the massa of God, the hard oracle of God. What is God doing? Yet he turns to his attendants. He turns to his servants. He says, basically, I think it's hold the donkey. Hold the donkey. I forget how it phrases it. It's more eloquent than that in your scripture. Hold the donkey. We're coming back. We're coming back, both of us. Because he knows God's an eternal God who's made eternal promises to Abraham. And the eternal promises go through that son. And so that son is coming back. He doesn't know how. He doesn't know how through the striking down of the sun exactly how that's going to work out. But the sun has promises upon him. And so because of those promises, he has assurance that God will do something great for him. God will redeem it. God will resurrect it. God will bring to life. And Habakkuk, in a similar manner, he's been praying for Judah's revival. It's reformation. It's return to the Lord. And he's, he has this Abraham Isaac kind of moment. Wait, you're going to kill it, God? You're going to kill the nation as I know it? You're going to strike it down? How are you going to do that, Lord? I can't even begin to fathom it. Judas seems to be on its own kind of death sentence. And yet, Intermixing with this truth are the core things that Habakkuk knows about God. That God has assured his people by his word that even though Judah might die, Judah can't really die. All those who are God's favored people will always be. Because it we trust in a God who has said, you will be my people. You will always be my people. I've consecrated you. I've set you apart to be my holy people. But then he moves on from that point, remembering the eternal promises of God and how that means that there, there is a future for them eternally. Still, the master rolls around in his head and he continues to rattle around in the mind of his prayer journal. And closing verse 12, Habakkuk admits the fact that God still will reprove his people and chasten them. God is basically going to answer the prayers of Habakkuk. And we can learn something here in the year of our Lord 2022. I'm sure I would guess every household, I really would guess every household in this church has been praying for what we see going on in the world, what we see especially going on in this nation. And we'd be wise to understand what Habakkuk is learning. Our hope, of course, is that God answers that prayer with great restoration and revival and reformation and a return of his people to God. That, that Christianity would not be on its waning moments in America, but actually Christianity and the saving gospel of Jesus Christ would be 
multiply greatly and above all measure and beyond all we could ever think or imagine. But sometimes for a short period of time, God will allow a nation to be judged, utterly destroyed, devastated, gutted. It appears that they lose all their inheritance, all their birthright, all that once was good. He allows it to be plundered. He allowed that to happen to Judah, and he might answer our prayers one of two ways. This is part of the Massa of Habakkuk, part of the harder teaching of Habakkuk. God will have moments in our life where he will cause us to scratch our heads. In verse 13, the heart of Habakkuk's prayer journal is a man struggling with this reality. Yes, Judah is evil. But why will God use something even more evil and more wicked to purify Judah, to devour it? Here was a nation of Israel's uniquely anointed child, Judah. We just read those passages. We just studied those passages at the end of Genesis. From a father, Abraham, who had been called out of Babylon, and now a new Babylon will come to the Holy Land to devour the first nation of the Abrahamic promise, a pagan godless nation, and pull them out from it. And then from verses 14 through 17, we have a prophet using commercial fishing language in order to discuss and talk about what was to come, what he had seen. First, there are three qualities he notices about the evil. Well, well, actually, even before that, the prophet compares this nation that he has concerned himself with to the fish of the sea. That it really helps you to understand what's being said if you put into place the nation of Judah, in this case, to the fish in the sea. See, these fish of the sea, they have no ruler they acknowledge. They have no ruler they crawl to. The fish of the sea, they don't acknowledge God, and they just swim in this world. They swim in this world without a care for the ruler of this world. And because these fish of Judah don't acknowledge God, they are easy pickings for wicked rulers to hook them with their wicked schemes and nets. And evil rejoices at this. Evil loves when more evil is created. Think of Satan himself. Satan was not content of just being a manifestation in one sense, a, a, an embodiment of evil. No! He longed to see more brought to evil. He longed to see humanity brought into evil. It's always ironic because so many think it's a wise principle in the real world. You know, when we get out of the pew and go and our boots hit the ground, and the, it's a wise principle to compromise with evil. You know, evil creates its boundaries. We'll create our boundaries, and we'll just play in different sandboxes, and we'll be okay. Evil's not content with that. Evil is a weed. Evil desires to spread. Evil desires to grow. It desires to continue to choke out the life 
of others. Evil seeks to devour what it sees as enemies. And within these verses, describing evil like a fisherman, there are three qualities Habakkuk focuses on when it comes to the conditions that evil thrives in and produces. And these three qualities of evil he notices in these verses help show us that Habakkuk isn't just talking about some military conquest. This shouldn't, you're missing part of the point here if you just think this is military to speak. Habakkuk points out what really destroys society and societies and nations is first, evil thrives on mistreating the righteous. Make them a scapegoat. They find a group that does no harm and they begin to attack them. Second, evil uses overwhelming brutality to enforce people's submission. Basically, if you're against us, we will, in one sense, cancel you. They make it hard to resist their ideologies and their ethics. There will be brutal consequences if you try to resist. If you dare to speak out against evil. And lastly, they make their God sensuality. Sensuality in one sense is like the lollipop it hands out. They offer their version of the world's pleasures in order to placate people to conform to their ways. The cotton candy of life, as Harry Reader was talking about in the Sunday school we listened to. The sensuality, in one sense, is the ultimate lure that they fish with and they cast their nets with and they bring people in. And then there's this remarkable verse, verse 17. It was such an encouraging verse. I got so excited about this verse. I have this like policy. I never like do a preview of the sermon to my wife. I don't really discuss it. I don't talk about it. But I was like biting my lip, biting my tongue, I guess. My lips, I could still talk with biting my lip. Well, maybe I couldn't. All right. I was, I just wanted to share the glories of this verse with her. I, eventually with um, Bruce on Thursday morning, I cracked. We were at breakfast. And I said, I just got to tell you about this verse. It's an amazing verse. It doesn't sound amazing when you first read it. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing the nations forever? I got to tell you a few things before I get into why that verse is so incredible. First off, the ultimate, pena, uh, the ultimate ancient world taunt in this region of the world was when rulers conquered large areas of land, they're like, they use fishing language. They love to use fishing language. There was a pharaoh who won a battle in Megiddo. He wrote up a big thing about that battle, and he basically was like, yep, I conquered all the people, brought them into my nets. There was a group called the Mari people in this region. And the Mari people, they had a bunch of other tribes they didn't like. And there's writings from them. And the writings basically say, oh, we can't wait until we can get our revenge and conquer these people and hook them with our fishing gear. We'll bring them in. We'll draw them into our nets. The Assyrians, who had conquered 
the 10 tribes of Israel. I'm sorry for the imagery of this, but it's important sometimes to know history. They put a hook through the lip of those they conquered. Through the lip, they strung them together with chains and they told them to march to the city we want you to march in. The power of Assyria that had conquered the 10 tribes literally would mar the people they conquered with an illustration of how you are under our hook now. We have captured you. And this is an incredible thing. There's some debate about who the first of the minor prophets was. Who was the first minor prophet to write a book? I personally believe it was Amos. I don't believe that only for personal reasons, but really good theologians take that position. So I say they're smarter than me. I agree with them. But Amos, at the beginning of the first prophet who's writing his own book through the call of the Lord, I think it's like in Amos 4.2, he talks about this. He talks about how people just get hooked by evil. Both Habakkuk and Jeremiah will talk about just the reality of how evil casts its net. Evil takes its these fish in, it takes these people in, and it makes them an enemy. And actually, the illustration here with Habakkuk is like the wickedness of Babylon will cast a net, grab those fish, throw them to the side to die, cast a net again, take them, throw them to the side to die, cast a net again, and they just keep grabbing all these fish out of the water, casting them aside, letting them die. And this is the complaint of the prophets. All throughout that first temple era, God, when are you going to put a stop to this? When are you going to stop allowing evil to fish out all these people and to cast them into death? Have you made the connection yet? Have you made the connection to the reality of Jesus Christ when he comes to his disciples? And he says, I will make you fishers of men. What he's actually doing there, he's actually answering the prayer of Habakkuk. He's actually saying, it's no longer just going to be evil that's fishing. It's no longer going to be evil that's just picking up people and throwing them into death. That's no longer going to be the reality. I'm going to make you fishers of men. I'm going to have a kingdom. I'm going to have a kingdom that casts out nets and tries to bring in the wealth of the nations and tries to bring in a people into salvation. And that's the good news. And now we have to ask ourselves, how often do we fish? You know, there's that, Remarkable story, and I'm going to grossly oversimplify it. At the end of the Gospel of John, they have seen the reality of the risen Lord. <laughs> the God who came to them. And when he first came to them, I will make you fishers of men. They've seen the reality of him. Rise from the dead. What do they do? They go back to their old routines. They go back to their old habits. We find them in the Sea of Galilee living as if there is no difference with the resurrection of Christ. 
they've gone back to the old ways. And part of what that is an illustration is, there's almost a gentle rebuke in it. There's a gentle lesson for us to learn. You know, even Peter, feed my sheep. Peter, you're supposed to be fishers of men. What are you doing? Going back to your old ways, your old patterns. I have commissioned you as my people to cast, to fish, to go out to multiply, to be fruitful, to bring people into my kingdom. This was the hope of Habakkuk. Remember last week, God said, Habakkuk, if I tried to tell you all of it, you wouldn't even be able to believe it. Jesus Christ's coming is an answer to that. Jesus Christ's coming and becoming, creating a people who are to be fishers of men is a part of the awesome, prayerful fulfillment of Habakkuk's prayer diary, of Amos's prayer diary, of Jeremiah's prayer diary, of so many prophets' prayer diaries. And what do we do? We find reasons we can't. We find reasons we won't. You know, I'm a pastor, so I pretend I have people pretend at times this is only like the job of Bruce and I and other people like that. That's not true. That's all our job. I believe that some of the greatest evangelists that this congregation has just probably haven't gotten the habit of casting nets, of fishing. Get fishing. You know, it was funny. I went to fish in the Gulf of Mexico, and Bruce saw this a little bit in the vacation with Rummy. I can be a competitive sort. I like to win. And the first stop with fish. My niece, two nephews, my brother. Oh, reeling in. Great fish. Reeling them in. Reeling them in. All of them. Kevin? Nothing. Next up. Boom. They're all reeling them in again. Reeling them in. Got nothing. Third stop. Again, all of them. Kicking my behind, to say it nicely. And my silent competitive self, I'm just like, got to figure this out. I got to figure this out. And God bless me. I started putting my finger on that line. The problem was I was serving fish buffet. Like there was no hook in it. Like to them, they were just nibbling around and they were like, they can, they kind of learned to spit out the hook. So once I put my finger on that line. I could feel that subtle tug, that subtle tug. Also, and I dominated the rest of the day. I ended up crushing them all. My brother is still feasting on the fish that I caught him because he got to take all the fish home. He paid for the boat. It was glorious. It was wonderful. We're all called to cast the line. Doesn't mean you're going to be successful every time. But God has given us all patches of water with friends, with family, with workers, co-workers, neighbors, and whom are around us. They're only around the waters that we live in. And we're the people who are supposed to cast the nets. We're the people who are supposed to cast the line. And the hook, of course, is the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. 
The hook is that we have a king who can rescue us from the evils of this world, starting with me, my own heart, my own sin, and you, your own heart, and your own sin. And we can share that message with others. And that's a message that draws others through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we're not called to stop fishing when we see the nation going. Actually, verse 2-1, and we'll get more to verse 2-1 next time, but, you know, Habakkuk still doesn't understand because he hasn't been able to see the fullness of revelation that we've seen through the coming and the advent of Jesus Christ. He still has questions, but he says, God, basically, I'm going to stand like a watchman, and I'm going to see if this stuff comes true, this stuff, you bring this to bear. And I think for some of us, while we know certain things are true that Habakkuk didn't know are true in a new way, we need to start casting that line and pray to God, God, I don't think I'm very good at casting the line. I look at people around me and they seem to be far better at casting the line, casting the nets in order to bring people into your kingdom and just wait and trust on the Lord prayerfully. Lord, I know that you bless this and you have the power to bless this. I know that you're ultimately the one who tugs and at the right time with power of the Holy Spirit, who changes hearts, who, who, who radically can turn people like Paul and me to know you, Lord, when we didn't want to know you. And so it's when we do that, it's when we go out and we start being obedient to the call that we were called to do, to be fishers of men that we can honor this prayer diary, this prayer journal of this prophet. And so let us be found to be people who are honoring the word of God. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, what an incredible God you are. You saw how the nations continually would cast people into evil and snare people in the nets and you've made a way to break those nets break through those bonds of destruction to cut at the heart of the matter and the heart of the matter is without you lord we have only a heart of stone so give us a heart of love and compassion for our neighbors give us wisdom and when speaking to our friends and our neighbors about the truth of your gospel, give us courage, Lord. Let us not fear, for you are the ultimate conquering king. You are the God who has decided to cast your affections upon this world, even though this world was in rebellion to you. And you are the God who, for the true Lion of Judah, Jesus Christ our Lord, you allowed him to enter into death for our sake, to be made sin for our sake, so that we might enjoy the fruits of his salvation. So let us share this truth with others. And now let us take a moment to quietly and privately confess our failures to do so at times throughout our days and weeks. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.